Hey everybody, this is Pierre Quinn. You're listening to episode number 115 of the Leading Wild Green podcast, where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Alan Weiss. Alan Weiss is a consultant, speaker, and best-selling author. And in the consulting space, Alan Weiss is legendary. And I mean legendary, having built an amazing independent consulting practice. So before we jump into the conversation with Alan Weiss about his new book and about some fundamentals for the consulting space, I just want to thank all of you who have been supportive of the Leading Well Green podcast, your shares, your reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Being with me on this leadership journey has been really, really incredible. And I just want to pause and yeah, just give a, give a shout out to all of my entrepreneurs out there who are trying to figure out how to pivot in this space. And I'm, I'm right there with you. I know, you know, I travel and I speak and I consult and it, we've had some challenging weeks, we had some challenging weeks, but I love how we have forged together with a sense of optimism and support, just amazing, crazy support sharing of resources that has happened during this time. And I know that better days are ahead as we keep looking ahead. So just want to encourage you, just want to encourage you. I know it's been difficult. I know for some of us, you know, you're wrestling with bills and things have been canceled and you're trying to pivot and get up to date with technology so that you can be available. And it's been a daunting task. We've wrestled with how to teach our kids. We realize that we should be paying our teachers so much more than we're, t- than we're paying them now. And a lot has happened, but I do believe better days are ahead as we keep looking ahead. So I just want to encourage you to, to hang in there, to, to keep pushing. I know it's tough. Keep pushing, keep pushing, keep going. And, and be sure to take those timeouts and breaks and, and mental health moments and naps and deep breaths and, and as much as you can, as we adjust to this crazy world that we live in. Okay, my guest on this episode of the podcast is Alan Weiss. Alan Weiss is a consultant, speaker, and best-selling author. Described by the New York Post as one of the most highly regarded independent consultants in America. His consulting firm, Summit Consulting Group, has attracted clients such as Merck, Hewlett-Packard, GE, Mercedes-Benz, and more than 500 leading organizations. He is the author of 64 books. That's right, 64 books, many of which have been included in university curricula and translated into 15 languages. His newest release is Fearless Leadership, Overcoming Reticence, Procrastination, and the Voices of Doubt Inside Your Head. Here's my conversation with Alan Weiss. Here's my conversation with Alan Weiss. Excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading Wild Grain podcast by Dr. Alan Weiss. Alan, thanks for being my guest today. It is my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so before we take a deep dive into your book, Fearless Leadership, share with the listeners how you how you decided on uh, picking consulting as a career. Well, it really chose me. Uh, <laughs> what happened was. I, uh, when I got out of undergraduate school, I went to work for Prudential Insurance. I was bored out of my mind. And a couple of years later, I was recruited by a consulting firm in Princeton, New Jersey. I said, well, if I go there for a year or two, it'll be like getting an MBA. And I stayed for 11 years. So that's what happened. 
Wow. Okay. So in the beginning, when when you were recruited and you were working, what was what was those those work experiences like? I mean, and and in addition to being bored out of your mind, were there other factors there? Uh, the culture, the people you worked with. What did you glean from that experience? Well, at Prudential, it was like being in prison, and uh, sometimes. I'll do a program today in a suite in a hotel, you know, high above Manhattan or Chicago or San Francisco. And I'll point out all these buildings and I'll say, what are they? And the people in my program will say they're office buildings. And I'll say, no, they're prisons. Hmm. Uh, now, they don't have to be prisons. You know, I, I'm exaggerating. Yeah. But Prudential was a prison. You know, they rang a bell when you could have lunch. They rang a bell when you could take a break. And you, you couldn't use any creativity. You know, you were dealing with insurance. When I was recruited to the consulting firm, I was in my 20s. And the most amazing thing I found was that when I was in the office of executives, they had the exact same emotional issues and political issues and, and conflicts that people on the front lines did, except mm-hmm. they were playing with a lot more money. Mm-hmm. And so I learned not to be afraid of people just because they had a certain title or office or income. Mm-hmm. So at, w- at what point uh, did, did you say when you were walking into an office, maybe of a high profile client or organization, did you say, yeah, I can do this or, yeah, I belong here? Did, did that happen pretty early or did it take some time for you to, to have that confidence walking in the door? It happened pretty early. I mean, I, I was in my mid-20s. Uh, I think what I had to gain was more maturity in how I said it. You know, <laughs> I realized that what I said was important, but I needed more maturity in how I said it. Uh, and I learned to do that to be effective. But I found that the vast majority of these people, 95% of these people, were good people. They weren't involved in conspiracies. They weren't trying to cheat customers. They were good people, mm-hmm. but they needed help like everybody does. Mm-hmm. And so I took a helping attitude. And I realized early on, uh, even when I was working for someone else before I went out on my own, that you can't be focused on simply making money. You have to be focused on providing value. At what point did you decide that it was time for you to go out on your own, like making that sort of that leap? Well, I decided that when I was fired. <laughs> so after after 11 years with this firm in Princeton, I was recruited to come up to Providence, Rhode Island to be CEO of a behavioral consulting firm. Mm-hmm. And it was owned by W. Clement Stone, who was a global financier. And uh, after a year and a half, he fired me. We simply disagreed on, on basic principles. Mm-hmm. He believed that positive mental attitude was responsible for him having $400 million. And I told him he had a positive mental attitude because he had $400 million. You know, he had these things reversed. <laughs> and so he fired me. And so... I went out on my own. My wife was very supportive. And I realized, you know, two things. The first is that this is a relationship business mm. and you're selling yourself, you're selling your worth, you're selling your credibility, your talent. The second thing is that I would never, ever charge by a time unit or a person sitting in a seat or a box of materials. I would only charge for value. Mm. And those decisions changed my life. And in fact, I pioneered value-based fees in the consulting profession. Now, there, there's a, a lot of things that I've gleaned from your previous books, even as it relates relates to, to pricing. Now, now you're for people who don't know you, who who haven't read about you, they they probably live under a rock. But in the world of consulting, I mean, you are legendary status, and this is not like a, a blowing smoke thing. Like legendary status, you're up to like what 60, 60 70 books, sixty four. 64 books, hundreds of articles. Let's let's talk about just the reach of the brand, just to give people some more context, the, the reach of your independent consulting brand uh, today. How, how far is that reach and, and your impact? Well, you know, my books are in 15 languages. I have global communities that meet both really in real time, physically and virtually. 
Uh, I've written more books on consulting than anyone in history. And uh, uh, I have the strongest independent consulting brand in the world. Mm. And so if I want to go to Dubrovnik or Bora Bora or Mykonos or wherever I want to go, people will come. And so I asked my wife, where do you want to go? And we go and people come. Mm. Uh, and uh, I find that um, these communities I've created, almost by mistake or accident at first, uh, have been very, very useful because, you know, people will say to me, well, come on, you're in a position. How can you relate to us? You know, you've got all these resources. Well, when I was fired, you know, we had nothing in the bank. Mm -hmm. And today I deal with people, some of whom are making millions and millions of dollars and some of whom are struggling. And the whole point of my community is everyone who's in consulting or coaching or those, those kind of helping professions uh, is welcome. And I keep my finger on the pulse of all kinds of different people in all kinds of countries so that uh, I really have more of a knowledge of what's going on in the profession, maybe than anyone else, by dint of this community. For, for people who, who want to begin to be a part of the consulting, uh, coaching profession, because you're, you're one of the people who can legitimately, legitimately say you are an author, you are a speaker, you're a consultant, you're a coach, and have all of that behind your name, those years of experience. And some of us use those titles uh, more or less aspirationally uh, for a person who is looking to get maybe started in the consulting industry. What would you, how would you suggest they begin to frame their knowledge or experience uh, to make it attractive to be able to help people? Well, I think you have to ask yourself some questions and that is if you're going into consulting and you know a lot of people from your background, your history, prior jobs, whatever it is, uh, and you have clear expertise that you can apply. And the expertise can be in terms of process, not content. In other words, a content expert knows how to make brake pads for a car, but a process expert, which I am, knows how to make decisions or, or solve problems in any environment because those are processes. If you can do that, you can go out on your own pretty rapidly if you have enough resources in the bank to support you for about six months or so. If you don't have those things and you want to join a consulting firm uh, and learn marketing because the, the, we're all in the marketing business. And, you know, in Field of Dreams, they said, build it. Uh, if you build it, they will come. That, that's a fallacious statement. The true statement is really this. Build it and tell them you've built it and they will come. Mm -hmm. And so marketing is telling them you've built it. And uh, there are a lot of consultants who are very, very good who are starving because they don't know how to market. There are some mediocre consultants doing very well because they do know how to market. And then there are some excellent consultants who also know how to market who are just, you know, leading the pack. So I spend a lot of my time helping people to understand how you get on the radar screens of your buyers. And you have to decide, your listeners have to decide, uh, are they prepared to do that or do they need help doing that? You talk about this concept in the book of wrestling with, and I think this may be, not maybe, is a huge factor in individuals even sharing with the world what they do. This idea of that proverbial little guy on your shoulder that's whispering in your ear and saying, you'll never be good enough. They're going to laugh at you. You know, who are you? You don't have enough experience. In, in your experience uh, talking with some of the top leaders in the world, how many, how many of them would you say percentage wise struggle with that? Explain the little guy on the shoulder concept and the percentage of people you would say actually struggle with that. Oh, I, I think at least uh, two thirds, 65, 70%. I think that a lot of people feel they're imposters. And the reason is that in this day and age of uh, the internet and social media and bullying and political correctness and so forth and so on, mm -hmm. uh, people become more and more afraid, which is why I wrote this book on, on being fearless. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and they're afraid to uh, take chances. They're afraid to take prudent risk. Uh, and they believe they'll be found out. They believe that somebody will point to them and say, well, you're just not good enough or you're not who you say you are. Uh, and this fear, ironically, the, the um, spiraling effect is the fear makes them even less uh, effective, mm -hmm. which makes them even more uh, of, the, of the belief that they're an imposter. So it's, it's a terrible cycle they enter. It's a doom loop instead of a virtuous loop. Hmm. And, and, and one of the manifestations of that fear is that sometimes as leaders, we try to put our hands on more things in the organization. We try to have everything run through us. We try to make all the decisions. Uh, how, how can we begin to, to release ourselves from feeling like in order to make things work, we have to control every part of the process in our organizations? Well, no leader has ever been effective trying to do everything herself or himself. That, that applies to the, on, the, on the battlefield, in a sports contest, it doesn't matter. Uh, and so uh, what you have to do is have good people around you. And what I have found unequivocally, with no exception, is that strong leaders have strong people around them and weak leaders have weak people around them. Mm. Uh, you never find weak leaders with strong people around them because they don't want to stay, right? Mm. So consequently, you have to be able to get good people and delegate to them. And you have to lead by exception. Uh, you can't just uh, try to make everybody's decision for them. And you have to understand that although people can't do things as fast or as well as you can, they can do them fast and well enough. Mm. And the, the key here is success, not perfection. I'll tell you one more thing. You know, I'm, I, for, for whatever reason, I'm a student of the Civil War. Mm. And in the Civil War, the highest rate of casualty of officers was Brigadier General. A Brigadier General was a one-star general. He led a brigade. And the way he led a brigade was he got on a horse. And he said to his people, follow me. And the general would ride his horse toward the enemy, and the foot soldiers would follow him. The foot soldiers felt, well, he's the primary target. If he's brave enough to sit in a horse and lead us, we can certainly follow him on foot. And so they had this very high fatality rate because they were shot at all the time. Today, not enough leaders get on a horse and lead their people, even though nobody's shooting at them. Wow. And so you have to be able to say, this is a time of ambiguity. This is a time of uncertainty. As you and I are speaking, the coronavirus is an issue, but the coronavirus has, has created more of an economic threat than a medical threat. People are scared of being scared. And so you have to get on your horse and say, follow me. And once leaders experience that and realize they're not being shot at, they become a lot more effective. But too many of them are saying, look, you go ahead, I'll catch up with you. Hmm. Well, and, and I know you have a background in psychology. Uh, what about the people who push back and say, well, Alan, who don't know your story and you, and you could talk a little bit about your backstory as well, but who say it's easy for you. You have a million dollar consulting brand. You know, uh, I, I'm, I grew up in a house where, you know, we weren't supported as leaders or there was abuse or neglect. And I'm really inbred and trained to be fearful. I don't know if I could rise to this idea of fearless leadership that, that you talk about. Well, I say a couple of things to them. You know, the first thing I'd say is I was born poor. I was probably born poorer than almost all of your listeners. My parents used to argue over how to pay the $40 rent bill every month. Mm. Uh, and I, I persevered from that. I went to public schools and I did just fine because uh, I wouldn't let that get me down. I mean, what's the alternative, failing? Mm. The second thing I'd say is with my community today, this global community, I have my pulse on the finger. I have my finger on the pulse of people all over the world at all stages of income. And I know exactly who's struggling and why and what causes it. You know, my son has a habit of telling me, you know, dad, you live in a different world. You know, I'm here trying to make money. Well, I, and I tell him, how do you think I got where I am? I came through your world. Mm. 
So uh, that's just an excuse. And, and what your listeners have to be very, very sensitive to is this. You need to listen to good advice. You need to listen to the right role models. There are too many people on social media who are marketing stuff where they've never marketed anything successfully themselves. They're just marketing their own marketing. <laughs> uh, and you know how, how people say, you know, the good thing about the internet is no one knows you're a dog. My dogs do better on the internet than some of these people do. So you have to be careful to whom you listen. And you have to, you know, here's my analogy. You don't want to learn to ski uh, by some guy in, a, in the chalet drinking brandy telling you what to do the next morning. You want a ski instructor who's six yards ahead of you on the slope saying, do as I do. Mm. And listen to this, you know, I tell people this a thousand times a week. No one ever learned to ski by reading a book. So as many books as I've read, have written, yeah. it's important to get a good coach and really learn how to ski. Well, what are the, what's the, the fear factors related to, to connecting with someone six steps or 10 steps or 20 steps? Because I know talking to some people, uh, you know, that, oh, you're, you're, you're talking to Alan Weiss, man, I, I could, I could never do that. And they're much more content having a conversation with people struggling just like them, like kind of moving that soup spoon around instead of reaching out to someone who has had success, even especially people who are just a few steps ahead. What are the fear factors associated with that? Well, that's why I write the books I write. You know, that's an esteem issue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I belong to an organization that, that doesn't do very well. I, I try to support them. But my description of the organization is they're not happy as long as every, until every member is as successful as their least successful member. So in other words, success threatens them. And we can't be threatened by success. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked with some of the finest people in the country as colleagues. You know, I mean, Marshall Goldsmith and James Carville and Dan Pink and, uh, you know, Cialdini and you name it. Uh, and what I've learned is that people at our level of success are generous and that we give back. And um, uh, you have to understand that uh, if you're afraid to approach people, that's on you. It's not like you've been rebuffed. And I said to Marshall Goldsmith once, I said, how'd you get to be a thought leader you know, in coaching? You know, he, he thinks he's the greatest uh, executive coach in the world. And he thinks I'm the greatest entrepreneurial coach in the world. So, you know, I like his style, right? But I said, how'd you, how'd you get there? And he said, I hung out with Peter Drucker. And literally in California, I carried his briefcase. Yeah. And I followed him around. And I, I met who he met and I learned. And he said he was very generous. And that's what you have to do. So to deny yourself access to people who can really help you the fastest and the best is, is self-limiting. You, you talk about this, this concept in the book. You know, for a lot of us, we're taught about our responses to life and either it's fight or flight. But you introduce a, a third concept in there that, that connects with all of us, but we don't necessarily are not necessarily cognizant of it. And it's the, the paralyzing concept of fright. Uh, can you walk us through that paradigm as you introduce it to the book and then the epl- implications on, on us as leaders? Sure. You know, I, you know we, we've talked so long about fight or flight, and it comes from this reptilian brain or the amygdala or wherever people identify. And the fact is our, our ancestors, you know, had to either flee great, uh, great peril or they had to fight and, and persevere and win. Uh, and that's fine if you're, you know, a caveman with a club, I guess. But the fact is today that uh, if you think of a deer caught in the headlights, which is, you know, a common metaphor, 
Mm-hmm. The deer doesn't fight because it doesn't even know what it's looking at. And it doesn't flee because um, uh, it doesn't, uh, it's too frightened to flee. And eventually it's going to get itself killed in most cases. And in a lot of cases, uh, we find uh, leaders uh, or entrepreneurs who are frightened and they don't move. They don't make decisions. They're basically frightened about their ego. They're frightened that they'll be humiliated. They're frightened that people will make fun of them. They're frightened that they will violate political correctness. They're frightened by a lot of things. And so there are overt threats which are clearly legitimate fears. For example, somebody with a gun or a tornado or a bear coming out of the woods and running at you. But there are threats, there are fears we have which are ludicrous, like walking on stage to address an audience or writing something or speaking up at a meeting. It's ludicrous to be afraid. It's ludicrous to be afraid walking into a buyer's office. I mean, what's the buyer going to do? Shoot you? Mm-hmm. You know, I, nobody ever walked into a buyer's office and, and been robbed by the buyer. It doesn't work that way. So I've tried to separate out this fright issue because it paralyzes us. And uh, it's, it's worse than flight because uh, we're, we're there and enabled to do something, but we choose not to. Mm-hmm. So that's why those three elements are so important to consider. And it's important to discriminate between what's legitimate to fear and what's completely illegitimate to fear. I was, I was on uh, social media a couple of days ago, and, and as we are recording this particular episode, the National Speakers Association has recently finished their winter conference. And one of the screen captures, someone had taken a picture of someone's slides. I can't remember the individual. Uh, but the slide said, uh, picking up a phone and calling a prospect has never killed anyone. And I think a lot of us are afraid of, of what you just mentioned. We, we have all of this kind of mental junk in there. What if they say no? What if they hang up? What if they don't know who I am? But, but how much of that is actually necessary to growth? How much of the rejection of, of sometimes stuttering in the beginning because your, your aim is not clear and getting more notable in the marketplace before you get close those deals? How, how much of that is really necessary to experience before you can get to the level that you're trying to get to? A lot of it. One of the most important characteristics for leaders and uh, entrepreneurs is resilience. Hmm. And resilience is the ability to bounce back from setback and defeat, to not take it as permanent, uh, to not wallow in suffering, but to say, okay, this happened to me. What do I do about it? That's resilience, taking control back. What do I do about it? And every time we have a setback, a buyer says no, somebody cancels something, a speech isn't successful, nobody wants to buy our book, whatever it is, that's a learning experience if you allow it to be. But if you allow, if you allow your ego to be bruised by all this, you'll never learn because you're trying to protect your ego too much. Hmm. So you have to ask yourself, okay, this individual did not buy from me today. Fair enough, so what? But if that happens repeatedly, you say, there's a pattern of people not buying from me. What can I learn from this? What do I have to change because I'm the common factor? And these are just rational uh, examinations of your own behavior and trying to move from non-success to success. Now, sometimes you need a coach for that, but if you fear it, if you hide it, you know, most conventions, and that person who put that screenshot up, by the way, probably stole that line from me as I think about it. (laughs) Most conventions are a lot of people getting together to lie to each other about how well they're doing. Oh, so so give us an example. And I know in all of your years of experience, and I, and I think um, that's how we want to to segue the rest of our time together. Give us an example of 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 a time where you coached a leader. And I know you have to 
names and companies and, and change them up and all around to protect the innocent. But where you coach a leader through fright, where, you know, maybe you took a whiteboard or sticky notes and put all those irrational fears on the board. And when they looked at it and took a step back, they, they thought, well, maybe it's not that bad. You were able to move them to the, the experience greater success during your time together. Well, I'll give you an example of someone I worked with for five years. Uh, and early on, uh, the fear in the company was that they were so far in number three position in the industry that they had to do something radical to catch up with number one. Now, the second one in the industry was on the horizon. And the first, the leader was over the horizon. Couldn't even see the leader. That's how far back they were in third. Uh, and, you know, I was like the fourth or fifth consultant they hired. None of the other consultants could, you know, make progress on number two and number one. And, you know, they were afraid. Uh, and the leader was afraid and the top people were afraid. They were afraid of stock prices, you know, tumbling. They were afraid they'd be fired because they weren't making enough progress, that the board would be unhappy. And I said to them, look, uh, you're letting someone else establish the norms here. You're letting the two companies ahead of you establish the metrics. And I said, why don't you take control back and establish your own metric and stop being so afraid of what they do? You know, I remember the day when Honeywell, the computer maker, used to fear what IBM would do. They'd wait for the IBM announcements on the next year because they were afraid of what IBM would do. They were so dominant in the field. Well, you can't win that way. So I said to them, why don't you describe who you are in a different way? And so we took what they were doing, and I want to reveal people would know the company, but we took what they were doing and we renamed it. Uh, and once we renamed it, I said, now you're number one in that field. Hmm. You are number one in this field. Don't let anyone catch you. And they stopped being afraid of the old number one and number two, and were proud of their new number one status and heightened that and promoted that and talked about that. So I think that's a good example of what you're asking me about. And that is they had, that leader had an irrational fear mm -hmm. because he had given up control. He had let the competition determine what was success. And most of us can determine what success is ourselves. Hmm. Give us give us another story from your wealth of experience of maybe uh, a client where when you when you first walked in the door, they, I mean, they gave you the worst time. And I've read some of I've read some of your sample contracts, and I'm trying to figure out okay, what was the experience that led to creating the sample contract this way? When you when you walked in the door, they gave you the the, the worst time. They challenged you, they pushed back on you, and you've developed some resilience over over time. But then after a while, they came back and maybe they apologized because they, they said, OK, I, I see that you really know your stuff. Well, I'll give you my favorite example, which I can I can give you names back because it was a long time ago and there was no apology necessary. <laughs> I was introduced to a State Street Bank, uh, which is one of the largest or not the largest sort of repository of, uh, of mutual fund transactions and so forth. You know, they actually hold the physical elements and they're also a commercial bank and so on. And I was doing projects for them. Uh, at their headquarters in Massachusetts. But this big project came in that was global. And it was very important to them. And the people who I was working with wanted me to take on this project. They trusted me. And at the time, it was $350,000. That's what I quoted them. And of course, you know, a third of a million bucks, a lot of money back then, a lot of money now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the CEO had to approve it. And the CEO at the time was a guy named Marsh Carter. And Marsh Carter had an office, you know, just about bigger than my house here. Uh, <laughs> And they said, you have to, you know, Mr. Carter's going to make this decision. I had never met him. And I walked in and he had this office full of mementos and, and things. He was a, he had been an officer in Vietnam. He was a decorated officer. He had all kinds of mementos and things. And, and uh, 
I sat down opposite this huge desk and he looked at me and he said, you're the consultant. I said, yeah. And he said, let me tell you something. <laughs> Over the last five years, he said, under my watch, he said, we have grown 22% compound profit a year under my watch. Why on earth would we hire you? So I've got about three seconds there to either make or lose a third of a million dollars. Yeah. And if I had said to him, well, Mr. Carter, that's enviable and everybody would love to do that. Maybe I can help you solidify that. So he would have thrown me out. And so I said to him within three seconds, the following, how do you know it shouldn't have been 34%? Mm. <laughs> and he looked at me for about six seconds and he said, you're hired. And the reason my book is called Fearless Leadership yeah. is because in the tough situations, you need to be fearless. You can't worry about the mortgage. You can't worry about what people think. You can't worry about your ego. You have to be fearless because nobody is shooting at you. Mm. There, there's a, a, a example that you give in the book where you talk about coaching a particular a particular leader, and then somewhere during that ex- that exchange, that leader asking you, uh, "Can I? Would I make it with your other clients?" Yeah. Can you kind of talk about the reality of this uh, comparison trap that we fall into, even yeah. when we have uh, factors of success? I I, um, I coached this executive who was one of the best I've ever coached. Uh, for two or three months, I forget, which is sort of the limit of my coaching engagements with executives. And uh, he was excellent. I just had to do some fine tuning. I mean, he was so good. He would he would cut off his subordinate sentences and, and finish it for them because he wanted to show he was in tune and everything. But of course, his subordinates felt a little cowed by that. So I worked on these minor things. And at the end of three months, we had our last debrief. And at the time, one of my huge clients that everybody knew about was Merck. And Merck was um, America's most admired company, according to Fortune magazine for five years in a row, unprecedented. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, before I walked out of his office, look, I have one more question. He said, do you think I can make it at Merck? Mm-hmm. And I sat back down and I said, after all this time and all the positive feedback I've given you, and you're changing your behavior successfully, why are you worried whether you could make it at Merck? Of course you could. Mm-hmm. But he needed that reassurance, that validation from a third party. And it's this little guy I write about on the shoulder, whispering in his ear, well, you're a big fish in a smaller pond. Could you be a big fish in a larger pond? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we all need that reassurance. And that's why we need a third party to validate us. Well, what's the, the, the difference between when you're working with a client and you're pointing out, okay, this issue is, uh, it's a skills thing. Like we got to get you up to speed in your skills versus this is really an attitude thing. This is perspective. This is, you know, I realize I need to put you in a, in a, in a place where uh, I need you to get more affirmation or, or to recognize consistently that you're doing a, a good job. How, how do you help uh, a leader or organization pan or tilt to see which, what really is the issue here? That's a great question. And, you know, this is Bob Mager's famous question. Bob Mager said, uh, if I put a gun to his head, could he do it? And if the answer is, yeah, if you put a gun to his head, he'd do it, you have an attitude problem. But if you said, no, shoot me, I can't do it, then you have a skills problem. Mm. And so I would separate out, if, if, this, if this woman, if this man really wanted to do this, could they? And if so, then there's an attitude problem. And an attitude problem is a coaching resolution. But if they couldn't do it because they don't have the skills, then it, that's a teaching problem, that's a skills problem, and, and that's a training resolution, skills building resolution. Mm-hmm. And so I would look at that early. And what I found amazingly, you know, I don't know what your listeners would be thinking right now, but what I found amazingly 
is that uh, I really encountered more skills problems and attitude problems in top leadership. Mm. They basically wanted to do a good job, but they didn't know how. And so I can impart the skills. Uh, occasionally, I'd have to coach because they had the wrong attitude about employees or customers or whatever, or there was cognitive dissonance. They'd say one thing and do another. But in most instances, they just needed a set of skills, often in what we call soft skills, mm-hmm. that made them more effective. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the the the, the reason behind that? Uh, how so many people can get to this this highest seat that many of us want to get to corner office, C suite, you know, expense account, all of that. How, how are they able to get there but not have these essential uh, soft skills, essential skills that that are needed uh, for long term growth? Well, often it's a case of the way we promote people. You know, we promote the best salesperson, the sales manager, and the best photographer, the photo editor, and so forth and so on. You know, the best accountant to CFO. And really, that's just content expertise. But we don't equip them with the social skills and softer skills they need. So one issue is a problem of how we tend to promote. Mm. Uh, and don't forget, you know, when IBM was in trouble, they brought in Lou Gerstner from the outside, who was not an IBMer, and that's how they saved themselves. So the traditional promotion doesn't necessarily work well. The second thing is that a lot of times people are afraid to give them feedback. And so when you don't give someone feedback, you actually enable their existing behavior through passivity. And so somebody says, well, I must be doing fine because nobody's upset by it. Wow. Okay. Okay. I mean, you're giving us a, ma- a masterclass in, in the few minutes that we have together. The, the, the thing that this thread as a, as it relates to fearless leadership, uh, sometimes getting to a seat of responsibility, and this could be some, the, one of the reasons why people don't accept it when it's offered is that sometimes in the seat of responsibility, you come face to face with fears, both real or imagined uh, more so because sometimes the spotlight is on you or the spotlight is on you more. Uh, what, what, what's the process that we can go through as leaders to really track the origin of where these fears come from, of, of how they got uh, coded into us in the first place? Well, that's, a, that's another good question. And, and what I ask people is why? Why do you feel this way? You know, why are you afraid to walk out on the stage? Why are you afraid to hold this meeting? <laughs> and I try to get at the root cause, you know, the cause of the cause. Uh, and if it's an attitude issue, you can coach them on that. If it's a skills issue, you can give them skills. You know, for example, somebody who's afraid to address a crowd, it might be because they don't know how to open a speech and I teach them to tell a story. Mm -hmm. Uh, It might be because they fear that uh, people won't like them. And I teach them that no one in an audience who's healthy, which is 95% of the audience, wants to go home and say, I had a great time. This person failed. They want to go home and say, I had a great time. I learned a lot from this person. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I deal with that. But you have to find the cause. Now, in most cases, the cause can be what I just explained and you can coach them through it. Uh, but sometimes it's therapeutic. Sometimes there's something holding them back in their origins that you can't unearth, and you need a clinician to do that. And when that has happened, which is the minority of times, but I've referred them to the proper person to do that. But that's usually a minority. Uh, In most cases, people need an attitude, a behavior, a skill, a talent that they don't possess sufficiently to help them through it. How much in your consulting practice is uh, the the use of narrative taking place? How, how much of it is you walking through your clients through, okay, how you got here, what you experienced? Because it, sometimes from the outside, it seems like consulting uh, can can be this daunting, sometimes super technical 
sort of paradigm, but how much of it is just really creating a space and platform uh, strategically for people to talk through their experiences? Well, you have to use your judgment. A lot of people will start talking and they'll say, you know something, I just answered my own question. Hmm. In which case, you know, I've been very useful. I haven't done much work, but I've been very useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes people will talk because they ramble and they make, they're trying to make that cognitive process uh, visible. They're trying to articulate the cognitive process. And I don't allow that. So what I usually do is I ask people to start with, what is your question right now? What do you want to improve? What do you want to change? What's your question? And let's work backwards from that. When, when somebody says, Alan, I think what you need is a background. I immediately say, no, I don't. Because if you start giving me background, I don't even know what to retain and not retain. Let's start with your issue. And then I'm intelligent enough to ask you questions if I need to. Mm-hmm. There, there's a, a business cartoon that I saw several years ago. And it, it paraphrasing, it said, uh, one manager, one, one C-suite leader is talking to the other. And it said, he's, one says, uh, what if we train our people really well and they leave us? And the other guy says, what if we don't and they stay? what's the how much of fearless leadership is actually dealing with the reality that the better you prepare people uh, the better you educate them the better you train them uh, they they might leave you and you need to have a system in place or pipeline in place so that when people find their their purpose or calling in another another spot that that you don't suffer or try to manipulate to get them to stay with you well, you know, I remember walking through Merck once with a manager who um, had an employee made a million dollar error and the employee uh, submitted his resignation and the manager said, I've just invested a million dollars in you. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, and in fearless leadership, I talk extensively about this, but maybe not from the direction you think. Uh, if you are someone who invests in people and you make them better, people will not tend to leave because money is not a motivator. Mm-hmm. The absence of money is a demotivator, but you know, Hertzberg and McClellan and the rest, they talked about hygiene factors. Look, here's the thing. My experience is overwhelming. People in organizations are motivated, and people can only motivate themselves by agency, by autonomy, by recognition of their talents. And if you give them that, none of which involves you know, raising their income, unless that's justified for other reasons, mm-hmm. uh, they will respond well and you will develop loyalty. I'd also tell you that. You need a healthy amount of attrition. I mean, maybe the attrition is 5% or 7%, mm-hmm. but you need fresh blood in the organization. You need diversity in an organization. So you can't expect to keep everyone in any case. Mm-hmm. Now, what's what's the, the, the value of that? Because some of us who are listening, you know, we're just starting off in our entrepreneurial journey. And the thought of down the road that this core team that I started with or the people that I've recruited after two or three years and I've built up a sizable team, the, the thought that, man, I'm, I'm going to have to let some people go or cycle some people out or even encourage some people to find uh, employment elsewhere. Uh, what, what's the value of that, especially when I'm looking at my situation now and thinking, well, we're doing fine. Everything is great. Why would I even want to have thoughts toward that end? Well, everything's never fine and great in that if you're not innovating, you're declining. Uh, you can't, you know, the only way you can coast is downhill. I've never seen anyone coast uphill. And <laughs> consequently, uh, if you're not innovating, you're declining. And to innovate, you need constant fresh ideas and fresh blood. You can't just do it with the current team. You need new people in there, people with different aspects, backgrounds, thoughts, 
cultures, uh, and you need to consider them because if you don't, if you simply try to keep your own team permanently, you will breathe your own exhaust. And if you breathe your own exhaust, you will asphyxiate. So if you had to do it all over again, and it was 2020 at when we're recording this, and I know people are going to watch this for years to come, but if you had to, if you had to start all over again in 2020 uh, with starting your consulting practice, with starting your business, your entrepreneurial venture, your leadership team, if you had to start it all over again in this context, where would you begin? Well, I think the first thing I would do is I would contact everyone I know and tell them what I'm doing and what value I'm offering. Because some of those people would be buyers, some would recommend me, and others, who knows, they might talk to people. So the first thing I'd do is I'd contact everyone. The second thing I'd do is I would focus on the value I bring people and not making money. So that when I got up in the morning, I would say, what a beautiful day. I wonder what opportunities I can offer people instead of, you know, another long, slow crawl through enemy territory. Uh, And the third thing I would do is I would develop a support team, uh, a spouse, a partner, colleagues, people I know. who shared my optimistic attitude because it's very lonely uh, being on your own. And so you need people who can support you, who can, who can help you in your downs and also rejoice in your ups. Now you have had a prolific career and I know you're not, not slowing down anytime soon. What, what's the best way for us to keep up with you uh, in your work? I call this shameless plug time. You've got incredible free resources out there as well that I've gleaned over the years and share it with people. If, if we want to find out more about your work and more specifically, if we want to get our own copy of Fearless Leadership, how do we do that? All right. So the best thing is to go to alanweiss.com, A-L-A-N-W-E-I-S-S.com. That's my website. You'll find uh, a ton of free things, articles, a video, audio, all kinds of free things. You can subscribe to my free newsletters. There are five or six free columns and videos. It's all for free. You can buy any and all of my books there. If you want the best buy on Fearless Leadership, go to Amazon. They offer deep discounts. I'm, I'm not allowed to offer them. Uh, I, you know, I don't care where you buy it. I'm not living on book royalties here. I'm living on you know, helping people in a lot of different ways. But I would encourage you to go to my site because you'll find things absolutely free that you can use immediately. Uh, and um, I, I think that you should take advantage of that opportunity. And I can attest to the fact that Alan has some great sample contracts out there that I've used. I mean, the language is super simple, super clear, super direct, and tons of additional resources. And he is a legend, folks. We're not just blowing smoke. Just Google Google Alan Weiss, and you'll see you'll see for yourself. It's been a pleasure, sir. It's been an honor uh, talking with you today, and I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat to both emerging and seasoned leaders who listen to this podcast. Well, thank you. I wish you well and your listeners well. Thank you for the opportunity. Great conversation with Alan Weiss about his new book, Fearless Leadership, and his insights on building your consulting practice and growing as a leader. I'll put some links in the show notes because I want to encourage you to pick up a copy of Alan's book and learn from his experience. I mean, 64 books and consultant to some of the top companies in the world. He has a wealth of experience to share. And that's all I got for this episode of the Leading Wild Green Podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. I want to encourage you to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts so we can get this message of effective leadership around the world. And so until next time, take care and God bless. <laughs>